We thank you that you are powerful and beautiful and you are the answer to everything we long for and everything we need. God, we need you, your presence in our lives. In the long story, nothing else matters, God, but you. So Lord, we come before you now and acknowledge your greatness, your faithfulness, your loving kindness that endures forever. And we thank you, Lord, for you. We thank you for you in our lives. Because apart from you, we would be dead. But in you, we have life and life abundantly. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness to us and to your word. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. How many of you read your Bible in the last 24 hours? I didn't say that so you would feel ashamed because you didn't. I just ask you that because I want you to know that if you are not in the Word of God, you are missing out. Look, I'm your lead pastor, and there's times where I go through seasons where I'm not spending as much time as I want to or need to in the Word of God. Can I tell you that I'm back in a season now for the last month where I am feasting on the Word of God? Can I tell you how my heart and my life are changing because God's Spirit is working through His Word? And I, how many of you love watermelon? Oh, come on. Really? Watermelon? Come on, watermelon is flipping awesome. So it was a couple weeks ago, my wife started buying watermelons, and I'm like chomping on this stuff. And you know, it's great because I'm watching my weight, but you can eat tons of watermelon and not worry about getting like fat. So I'm like chomping on this stuff, and I want another piece, and another piece, and another piece, and another piece. And I just love watermelon. And I said, God, help me to want to feast on you and your ward more than I want to eat watermelon. <laughs> that sounds funny, doesn't it? But think about your favorite meal. Just bring it to mine right now. Mine happens to be chicken tikka masala. What is yours? Maybe a little um, roast with Bernays sauce. I don't know what it is. You got this incredible mashed potatoes next to it, and the gravy is just perfect. Anybody starting to salivate yet? <laughs> you bring that to mind, and you get a sense of longing in your, in your gut. I want to eat. God wants you to long for him a million times more than you long for that meal. Because Jesus said, I have food that you know nothing of. You see, when we feast on the word of God, God's word comes to us and he starts to do things in us. He starts to set us free from ourselves and from the world around us. And we start to experience joy and peace and loving kindness and compassion. We start to become like him. Hebrews 4 says this, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, if you're in the word of God, God's sword is coming in and actually cutting into you, dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It's 
examining and judging your thoughts and attitudes and bringing them before the throne of God. And he's saying that thought is not of me. Replace it with me. Have my mind rather than your own mind. You see, I'm going to encourage you over the next seven weeks as we dig into Philippians to start chewing on the word of God in maybe a way you never have before. Maybe for some of you, you've tasted of this. You just need to return to the practice. But I'm returning, and I would encourage you to get a little journal. This is my journal. I write in this every day to God, usually two or three times a day. You're like, Jeff, two or three times a day? You're a professional religious guy. I can't do that. Yes, you can. Take it to work with you. Put it out on your lunch. Write your, your scriptures in your journal. Chew on them. I got a little thing called my list in this journal here. It's just started a new one. I always celebrate when I start a new journal with Jesus. And I got my list on this thing. It's just a list of scriptures that I've memorized here. And then I just chew on these words, right? I can just look at them. Psalm 23, you know that one, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in one. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides my feet in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will chase after me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. Amen. Can I ask you a question? If you really believe that, would that change the way that you live your life? Amen. Thank you, Denny. You're always the first one to, to clap. I could go through all of these and we could spend a month of Sundays right here, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to dig into Philippians 1 with you today. But I want to encourage you to be meditating, memorizing, praying, applying, and obeying because I believe God wants to set you free. Because the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So we're going to look at the book of Philippians over the next seven weeks. And um, if you've been in this book before, uh, praise the Lord. If you haven't, I think you're in for an incredible ride. Um, Paul, who is the author of this book, you know, um, he wrote this to the church at Philippi to thank them and also to strengthen them by showing them that true joy, true joy comes from Jesus Christ alone. How many of you would like to have more joy in your life? Just show of hands, right? We're going to talk about joy, what it is biblically. But I want you to first, with me today, memorize a verse. Okay, and this is from Philippians 4.4. 4. We're going to call it our key verse for the next seven weeks. And it's rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And we're going to sing it. You guys know the song? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. You got it? I think you need to sing it again. I mean, that was okay. But you need to sing it like if you, you know, you, were, you have a mug in the hand, no beer, but like a mug, you know? You ready? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice. And again I say rejoice. 
Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Praise the Lord, right? One of the ways in which you can chew on God's word is to listen to the music of God. See, God has hymn writers. He has teachers, he has prophets, he has priests, he has kings, he has all these kinds of folks, he has all these kinds of people, but he has hymn writers. And these are psalm writers. These are people that take his words and they set them to music. I would encourage you to listen to music that is comprised of the word of God. When you do that, you start memorizing the word of God. You start chewing on it because you're hearing it redundantly, repeatedly, over and over and over again. And God puts a new song in your mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. You see, this is what God calls us to do, is to chew and meditate on who he is and what he has to offer us and calls us to rejoice in him always. The words joy, rejoicing, and gladness appear at least 19 times in the four short chapters of Philippians. Philippians is a small letter. If you wrote it in small print, you could fit it on a page, maybe a page and a half. But 19 times Paul uses these words, joy, rejoicing, and gladness. Here's just a few examples of what he's saying. I always pray with joy, Philippians 1.4. We're getting to that today. Christ is preached and I rejoice. I will continue to rejoice. Be glad and rejoice with me. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. If you read the book of Philippians and you miss joy, you're missing the forest for the trees. See, Paul is a joy-filled man. He is consumed with the joy of the Lord. But the scripture says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. How many of you ever feel weak? How many of you ever feel tired, exhausted, overwhelmed? Just keep your hand up. <laughs> I'm there with you. I am. I feel all those things. And there's sometimes I feel hopeless. But when I enter back into the presence of God and the joy of the Lord starts to well up in me, I get strong again. That's on my face last night before God. I've been dizzy all this week. I don't know if anybody else experienced this, but my dizziness, I think, I went to the docks, so I don't worry. Like, don't be coming up to me and telling me what I should do. Um, I think I have like uh, just some sinus stuff or whatever, but I, I've been like having to hold on to walls and stuff and everything. I'm just dizzy, you know, and, and then that kind of gets me anxious, and then I'm feeling this or whatever, and then I'm just feeling exhausted. Went to the Lord last night. I was in my time with him again, and you know what he did? He infused me with joy, and you know what happened? My strength returned. He is the one that restores your strength. He gives strength to the weak, he is the one that if you trust in him, you will soar on wings like eagles, and you will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not be faint. That is his promise to you. The question is, will you seek him? Paul was so consumed with the joy of the Lord that he committed himself and his whole life, ever since Jesus knocked him on his donkey, to, to, he committed his whole life to spread. He didn't really get that one, but... <laughs> Just think about another name for a donkey. And remember, he knocked Paul onto his donkey, right? Paul was so consumed with the joy that he committed himself to spreading the joy of the gospel everywhere he went. And he traveled over 10,000 miles to spread the joy of the Lord. 
Now, some of you are saying 10,000 miles. That's no big deal. My dad has more frequent flyer miles than that. Well, did he walk them all? Did he sail half of them? Like, Paul walked, and he, he was in a boat that was powered under a sail, and he was shipwrecked to boot. He said he was so consumed with the gospel that he walked and, and boated all these miles, 10,000 miles, as a Christian missionary to share the joy of the Lord. You see, Paul was so focused that he actually allowed this joy to carry him on all these missionary journeys. Here's his second one. If you notice that circle, that's Philippi. That's where this church that Paul founded was actually receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul. If you look, I think we'll go back one here, if I can go back one. Can I go back? Does this go back? Yeah, you see that little circle down there? That's Jerusalem. So on your lower, is it your lower left? Lower right. On your lower right, you're, there's Jerusalem, right? And so that, then he's now going up now, and he's hitting Philippi for the first time on his second missionary journey. And that's where he founded the church there on this second missionary journey. Here's his third missionary journey, and he's returning to Philippi now to continue to check on those who he has entrusted with the gospel. And he continues to spread the joy. Paul himself spent over 10,000 miles. He wrote 13 of the 27 new books uh, of the books of the New Testament that we read and study as the Word of God. And his last journey was to Rome. You see, um, he was so focused on the joy of the Lord as his strength, he allowed the Lord to carry him before Nero. And Nero pronounced his judgment and beheaded Paul. Uh, we don't know that from the scriptures, but we do know that from church fathers and from other historical documents that Paul was most likely beheaded for his faith. Why? Because he had a clear devotion to spreading the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even death by execution could not rob Paul of his joy. Why? Why? Because first of all, the one who had gone before him, Jesus Christ, had blazed the trail that Paul was to walk. And Paul kept his eyes on Jesus. Listen to this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. These are the words of Paul, by the way, in Hebrews. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. Would you say that with me? Who before, uh, no, you got to say it right. Who for the joy set before him, what, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, joy was the possession of Jesus. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So Paul's following after his master, and he's going before Nero, and he's saying, look, you can do whatever you want to me. I love him. And the joy of the Lord, he is my strength. You're not my strength, Nero. I give no power to you whatsoever. I belong to God. Now, can I tell you something? This kind of persecution we know nothing of. But can I tell you the days are short? Can I tell you that I believe that this kind of persecution is continuing to ramp up for Christians? Can I tell you that someday in our lifetime we may have to stand before a Nero? I don't know if that's coming for me before I go home. All I know this is that I hope the joy of the Lord is my strength that I can stand before whatever Nero there is before me and say, I love Jesus Christ with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And nothing you can do can ever separate me from the love that he has for me. Amen? Amen. 
Paul did that. That's remarkable. So what is this joy that we're going to talk about? Well, I want to give you a biblical definition of joy. Here's a working one. Joy in Christ consists of a deep and abiding confidence that all is well, regardless of circumstances and difficulty. Would you say that out loud with me? Joy in Christ consists of the deep and abiding confidence that all is well, regardless of circumstance and difficulty. So, look, we're Christians. When we follow Jesus Christ and we know him and we love him because he first loved us, it doesn't mean that we don't bleed when you cut us. It doesn't mean that we don't shed a tear when things are bad. It doesn't mean that we don't sob over the pain and iniquity and sin of the world. Why? Because we suffer. We suffer. We feel that pain. But when we know the Lord and we grow in the Lord, there is this deep and abiding sense of confidence that all is well and the rock on which we stand will never be removed. No matter what happens around us, he remains the same yesterday, today, and always. He is the steady ground on which we stand. And that gives us joy. Joy in a way that you could never ask or imagine. It's undeniable, and it's, it's, un, it's uncanny, the kind of peace that God gives you. Biblical joy is always related to God, and it belongs only to those in Christ. It is a permanent possession of every believer. And I want to say that again. If you are in Christ Jesus, and if you have a relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, the joy of the Lord is your permanent possession. It can never, it can never be taken from you. You're sitting here thinking, well, well, Jeff, I mean, I, I'm a Christian. I, I follow Jesus. I love Jesus. I've been in him for 20 some years. And yet I don't always have a confident sense of well-being in my heart. You know why? Because you allow someone to steal your joy. I know how because I do it too. Why are we not always permanently in touch with this thing that we permanently possess? Why is it not always something that we feel or have a reality around? Because we lose our way. We lose our way and we begin to look to the world for joy rather than to Jesus. Every single one of us does this, folks. I know it. I've sat with enough of you. And I've sat with enough people in my life to know that I do it frequently. Here are some of what happens when we place our joy in the things of the world. Because worldly joy leaks. Can you say that with me? Worldly joy leaks. If you are hoping in the things of this world, that hope and that joy will eventually leak away. Because nothing is forever except God and his faithfulness. Joy robbers. First one, our circumstances. Second one, people. Third one, things. And when you put number four there, when you actually put your hope and look for your joy in circumstances, people, and things, then you worry about losing circumstances, people, and things. Amen? You see, what happens is when you kind of put your joy or your hope for joy in these things, that joy leaks, it is fleeting. And when you look to these circumstances, people, and things for joy, then you worry about losing them. And worry is the great robber of joy. You know, Paul had incredibly trying circumstances. Do you know that? He had amazing circumstances. Listen to 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Are they servants of Christ? He said, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more 
He's talking kind of candidly here, but he's saying, like, I'm kind of crazy to brag about this, but I've worked harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death and again and again. Five times I received from the Jew 40 lashes minus one. Can I say that again? Five times from the Jews, his own people, he received 40 lashes minus one. That's a cat of nine towels, folks. Going across your back, ripping out bone and sinew and all this kind of stuff. It's nasty stuff. Five times he got that. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was pelted with stones. Three times he was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in dangers from my fellow Jews, in dangers from the Gentile, in dangers in the city. You're getting the danger theme, right? In danger in the country, in danger at the sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone out without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold, and I have been naked. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you been through that stuff? I mean, I know you've been through some suffering yourself. I'm not trying to minimize your pain. But you read Paul's list, and I go, I got nothing. I got nothing to complain about. I remember this one passage in the scripture. I can't remember what it is right now, but basically this is my paraphrase. He says, you know, God's saying to me, you ought to be quiet. You haven't resisted yet to the point of shedding your blood. How did Paul maintain his joy, this deep and abiding confidence and well-being while he was suffering through all these circumstances? I believe the answer is found in another repetitive word in the book of Philippians. And the word is mind. The word mind is used ten times and the word think is used five times. The secret of Christian joy is found in the way that God's presence changes the way that we think. You see, this is the battleground right here. Your circumstances are not the battleground. The people around you are not the battleground. Do you understand this? The things in your life are not the battleground. The battleground is not out here. The battleground is right here between your two ears. Now, there is a world, and the world is at war. I'm trying to tell you, when it comes to joy, if you are not transformed by the renewing of your mind, you will not experience and taste the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord will not be your strength. Do you know when you get the mind of God, what happens to you? You rise above your circumstances. She gives you this high place to stand. You do not entrust your soul to others the way you're supposed to entrust it to God. The scripture says Jesus would not entrust himself to men for he knew what was in men. That's a transformed mind. I love you all. I really do. But guess what? I am not going to entrust myself to you. You know why? You're finicky. And one day you may love me and the next day you may not. But guess what? Jesus Christ loves me all the time. So when we have the mind of God, we rise above our circumstances. We don't entrust our soul to others, and we do not look for security and significance in the things of this world. Your identity is not based on what kind of car you drive or what kind of house you have or what kind of clothes you wear. Jesus didn't have any of those things, and he had two tunics and a pair of sandals. And he was the most amazing life to ever walk our planet. Why? He was the God-man. Perfect in every way. See, your identity is not based on your haircut. I know some of us get a bad haircut. We go, I'm not going out for months. 
You are allowing the things of this world to rob you of joy. For God says to you, I want to transform you by the renewing of your mind so you see yourself the way that I see you. And I even know the number of hairs on your head. And Jeff, they are getting less and less. You know, I can look at this thing. I, I saw a picture of myself not too long ago from the back, and it was rather disparaging. I went, what the heck is going on there? Is that my head? I don't like that so much. And Jesus said, I love you, Jeff. I love your head. I, I love everything about you, Jeff. You're precious to me. But God, you're taking my hair away. He said, what's that to you? I will never take away my Holy Spirit from you. I will never take my presence from you, Jeff. That's what matters. Your hairs don't matter so much. The things of this world, they become kind of strangely dim in the light of him and his glory and grace. It's a, a message, you know, from the scripture, but from a song. And So we know that God's love in our lives is the only thing that remains the same. And we build our house on that rock. You see, when we build our house on the love of God and the person of Jesus Christ, then we stand on firm ground. And our joy is realized in this deep level that we could never ask or imagine before. We're going to listen now to Paul in, in the Philippian church begin addressing them in a way that speaks so clearly of this joy that he permanently possesses in the Lord and he's in touch with ongoing. Now, Paul himself, he wrestled with staying in touch with his joy all the time. It's clear in his writings. And guess what? He was just a guy. He was a son of the living God. And if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, you are a son or a daughter of the living God. Don't idealize Paul. He's just another guy called by Jesus like you and I are called by Jesus. But he's experiencing the joy of the Lord. And he's writing to this people who he loves. So today we're going to talk about primarily about joy in relationship with others. Listen, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, stop. Now when you read a letter from Paul, he's always addressing it with who he is. You realize he didn't say, Paul and Timothy, servants of you. Now by the way, he's called to serve them, but he knows his calling to serve them is only under the serving of the one who he's actually enslaved to. You see, this is a word bondservant. I am bonded to him. I am tied to him. He is my hope. He is my strength. He is my joy. I'm writing to show you his love. I'm writing to encourage you. I'm writing to thank you. But you know, I'm writing this because of him. I listen to him. He is my Lord. You are not my Lord. Can you just look at somebody here and say, I love you. Do that. But you're not my Lord. Now, can I tell you something? You cause a lot of pain in your life by making other people the boss of your life. What's Lord mean? It just means boss. We don't live in feudal systems anymore, so we don't talk about people as lords or ladies. I've always thought it'd be fun for Tracy to call me Lord. <laughs> Probably a little bit of my pride in there, don't you think? I call her my lady. And then we would dig a little moat around our house or something, you know? But Lord means boss. And Paul is saying, he's my Lord. We're servants of him. 
Read Paul's letters. See how he defines himself all the time. He always starts with a statement of his identity. Very important. Listen to what he now talks about their identity. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My gosh. <laughs> Do you hear it? It's just dripping with love and life and light. This is a love letter written from God through the Apostle Paul to the church, to us. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now that's much better than watermelon. That's a meal for your soul. That's a feast. We're supposed to chew on this. We're supposed to pray and let the Spirit of God guide us in such a way that the Word of God becomes alive to us and it's sharper than any double-edged sword and it starts to divide joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Why? So that we can lay down our minds before God and that we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we can be reborn in Christ day after day after day after day that you are being sanctified, that you would be pure and blameless before God. Now, I'm going to summarize what Paul is saying in these verses 1 through 11. He's saying this to the Philippi church. I have you in my mind. Can you say that? I have you in my mind. I have you in my heart. And I have you in my prayers. So let's talk about having you in my mind. So, um, before we do, though, I forgot about that slide. It wasn't in my notes, but it's up there, so I'm going to go with it. When joy and gratitude come, we're connecting the people of God to the promises of God. This is very important. You understand what Paul is saying here. I thank God every time I remember you and all of my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Listen, being confident of this. I know this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. How many of you believe that God has started a work in your heart? Can I tell you something? He is not going to stop until you're done. He is not going to stop until he brings you home. He is not going to stop until he comes back. He is going to continue that work in you. Oh, wait a second, Jeff. I know lots of Christians, and they you know, 
kind of walk away or stumble or they forget. And I don't think that the work of Jesus is progressing in them. Let me tell you it is. You know why? He may be making them miserable so that they come back to him. Can I tell you something? Every time God has made me miserable so that I come back to him, and he's done it a lot. Anybody with me? You know, I don't know, God. Maybe I just won't really spend so much time in your word. I don't know, God. Maybe I, I really don't really need to pray as much as I am. I got maybe, like, maybe I don't really want to do things your way, God. You know what he says to me? He's like, okay, have at it. You're not going to argue with me? Nah. My universal laws in place are just going to break your back, Jeff. I'm going to put you on your butt. And then you're going to come running crying back to me anyway. You know why? Because you belong to me. You're my son. I'm your dad. I'm not worried about that question is, do you want to suffer that kind of unnecessary pain? Do you actually want to, like, you know, the kingdom has been entrusted to us. Do you really, in your heart of hearts, want to walk with Jesus or walk in the flesh? No, God, I want to walk with you. You see, when he gives you a new heart, the sure sign of that is that you want the things that God wants. Now, you know you have this flesh in you that is wanting the things of the world, but he who lives in you is greater than he is in the the question is, every day you get out of bed, who are you going to submit yourself to? You see, the promises of God are this. He's going to continue to carry this on until the day of completion. If you have somebody in your life that you know knows Jesus Christ, but they're out there stumbling around in the world, you, you know that in your heart of hearts like, that they come, they've come to Christ. He will not let go of them. He is the relentless hound of heaven. He will chase after them with his mercy and grace and loving kindness until he makes them miserable. And then they will get low enough to look up, and they will turn back to him. Parents, this is a promise you need to count on for your children. Tracy and I have had to count on this for our children. We've had to. We've prayed so many prayers for them, so many prayers, and we just said, Lord, we know you have them. You have them. Zachary, Michaela, and Noah belong to you, God. You are their parent. God, your kid has a problem. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? I'm going to talk about that in a little bit more, but that's a great prayer. You know why? You're not meant to carry people on your backs. You're meant to put them on the big, huge back of God. And one thing that will steal your joy is when you try. When you try. But you've got to count on the promises of God for people. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Do you know that every person you love, God has in mind for them a hope and a future and plans for them that are beautiful. Well, Jeff, those plans may not come to reality. You're absolutely right, especially if they don't know the Lord. But if they don't know the Lord, he loves them more than you love them. Do you understand that? That if there are people in your life who don't know the Lord, he is longing for them to come to him more than you are longing for them to come to him. A million fold. You count on the promises that come from his heart for the people around you. And God will continue to carry on and do his work in everybody. Now listen, he says, I have you in my mind. What does that mean? Paul is saying, I think about you often. And I think about your welfare before I think about my own. I think about you and everything.
every time I think about you, I'm grateful for you. Now, Paul, actually God, through Paul, is hitting at two core issues of our sinfulness. Here's the first one. We are extremely critical people. You're going, no, we're not. (laughs) Case in point. Can't believe he just said that. You called me a critical person. Yep, I did. How many of you realize that you're critical of the people around you? Here's the second core issue of sinfulness that God is striking at. We are self-absorbed. Some of you might go, I don't really think I'm self-absorbed. Okay, let me ask you a question, and I've asked you this before, but um, when you see a group picture that has been taken, who's the first person you look at? (laughs) Don't tell me it's your wife or your husband. You're full of it. It's you! The first person you try and find is you. Where am I? Where am I? And then why do you suggest a retake? (laughs) Oh, let's take it again. Let's take it again. Why? Because you don't think you look so good. It's not because you look at your husband and go, oh, he looks better. Let's take it than that. Let's take another one. You don't do that. You look at it and you go, am I okay? Do I look okay? Because the most important thing is whether, to me, is me. That's called self-absorption. And God, through Paul, is striking at our self-absorption. He's trying to say, I want you to think about others. And when you do, I want you to thank me for them. Now listen up. (laughs) This is important. He says, I thank God every time I remember you. Every time? Yeah, every time. Every time I bring you to mind, I thank God for you. Now let me ask you a question. Every time you think of the people closest to you, do you thank God for them? Wife, do you often bring to mind your husband and immediately just go right to gratitude to God? Husband, when you bring your wife to mind, just immediately just gratitude well up in you and overflow for your wife. This should be convicting, by the way. Son, daughter, how about your mom or dad? If you're here, son or daughter, and your mom or dad, how often do you bring them to mind and immediately thank God for them? Employee, how about your boss? You bring your boss to mind and immediately well up with gratitude to God for your boss? How about boss? You're here today. How many times do you think of your employees and immediately well up with gratitude to God for them? Married people, how many times do you bring to mind your in-laws and immediately well up with gratitude? That was meant to be the last one. That's kind of like the zinger. How many times do you bring them to mind and immediately well up with gratitude to God and say, I thank you, God, for my (laughs) mother-in-law? It's a little bit of a stretch, right? All things are possible with God. And you are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, first of all, you're to see the good in people and you're to say the good. Very rarely is there anybody in your life that's all bad. There's good things about the people around you. And with God's eyes, you are to see that good and you are to thank God for the good in them. Thank you, God, for this good in this person that you have put around me because there's usually many redeeming things in most people. So you're to give thanks to God. Jeff, you don't understand. There are horrible people in my life. Well, that may be true. To some extent, we're all horrible. It's just some of us are more horrible than others, right? It may be true that I don't understand how horrible the people are in your life, but it may also be true that you don't understand that God uses all things in your life to the good 
because you love him and you're called according to his purpose. Now, that's a promise you can take to the bank. God uses all things in my life. Can you say that? God uses all things in my life to the good because I love him and I'm called according to his purpose. You see, that's a promise that God is sovereign and he's using everything in your life to good, even the horrible people in your life. Jeff, really? Like, I... How is he using horrible things in my life? How is he using horrible things, horrible people in my life? I can say, God, thank you for my stubborn child. How can I say that? You know when my kids were stubborn when I was parenting a lot? I mean, they're stubborn now, but their stubbornness, they're adults. (laughs) So they get to handle their own stubbornness. I don't have to manage that anymore too much. But when they were little and growing up, they were stubborn frequently. Anybody have a stubborn kid? You know, my kids were stubborn, and they were disrespectful at times. They're great kids, great people. I'm not trying to talk negatively about them, but they're sinful like all of us. And so, you know, stubborn and and disrespectful at times and belligerent and all these kinds of things. Do you know that every time that one of my kids, I was hurt by the things that they were doing, I went to God, and you know what he said to me? Jeff, um, just just take a minute and help you understand something. The way they're treating you, that's the way you treat me. And I went, What? And the more that I thought about it, I knew he was absolutely right. You know, you give your, give a, your kid a good gift, and don't you want to hear like a heartfelt, thank you, mom, thank you, dad. You know, when they walk away and say, ah, thanks. Do you know you do that with God all the time? He just gave you a beautiful day yesterday. You know how often he paints a picture in the sky? It is so incredible. Do you know right now you're breathing? Do you know you're a miracle? heart is beating. And you just sit and think about it. You go, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for my life. You see, I can thank God for my stubborn kids because that helps me understand how much he loves me in the midst of my own stubbornness. I can thank God for my overbearing mother-in-law. I really can. You know why? He really helped me to understand how to exercise godly boundaries. I thank you, God, for her. Because now I understand better what it means to not try and get life from somebody else around me. Many of you know, I went through some really difficult things in my childhood. I lost a brother to suicide. It was really hard for me to thank God for my brother and and for his, his, his whole ordeal. It was really tough. He was mentally ill. He'd used a lot of LSD in the 60s, and that blew his circuits. And he, and he took his own life. And I found him after he'd taken his own life. That's tough stuff, Right? I stand before you by the grace of God healed from much of that. I don't know that I'll be healed from all of it until I go home. I just got to be honest. But that was a big thing in my life. I don't thank God for Phil's suicide. But I thank God for that whole situation because apart from that, I probably would have never gotten low enough to look up. Do you understand? That crushed me. Now, what the evil one intended for evil, what what Satan intended for evil, God used for good. You know why? Because that drove me to my knees. That drove me to a place of being on my face before God and crying out to him, God, I can't live this life. I can't do this anymore. And he said, you're right. 
And I've been waiting for this moment and you for the longest time. Before the world was ever even created, I knew that you would come to this place, Jeff, and that you would become my son and I would become your dad in heaven and you can trust me with your brother. Because Jeff, as much as you loved him, I loved him a million times more. Do you understand that God uses all things in your life to good? Because you do love him and you are called according to his purpose. This is why we can thank God for all the people in our lives. Now, you got to listen to me. If you don't get everything out, anything else during this message, get this. If you start bringing the people around you to mind regularly and begin to immediately and consistently thank God for them, he will change your life. You know what he'll do? He'll change your heart by giving you eyes of gratitude. And he will replace your critical spirit with the spirit of thanksgiving. That will change the way that you see people. I've been practicing this for a little while now. You know, because um, sometimes when I bring my wife to mind and my kids to mind and the people, you guys, I gotta be honest with you, I'm not like overwhelmed with gratitude right away. <laughs> and you know what I've been doing? Is I've been taking the people closest to me every day all around me and just bringing them before God and saying, thank you for that person. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for I get to work with that guy or that gal. Thank you, Lord God, that that person's a member of my family. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that you love them. I praise you, God. Thank you so much. And you know what happens when I see him again then? I'm filled with joy. I'm filled with joy. Why? Because I've been practicing gratitude, because I've been thanking God, because I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind. And my critical spirit is being replaced and displaced by a spirit of thanksgiving. If you're doubting me, pray and try this. I can guarantee you that God will give you a heart of flesh and he will replace your heart of stone. You see, this whole self-absorption thing, we need to allow God to bring other people to our mind and not only be grateful for them in our minds, but we have to have them in our hearts. See, Paul said, I have you in my mind. Say that after me, I have you in my mind. And then he said, I have you in my heart. So he goes deeper. Listen to what he says here. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Listen, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I am affectionate towards you. Do you know how crazy God is in love with you? Do you know how overwhelmed head over heels in love he is with you? Do you know that he sent his son, his one and only son, to hang on a cross for you because he loves you that much? This is the greatest love story ever. And this is so much better than Hallmark, right? I mean, how many of you like Hallmark? You can confess it. Go ahead. Yeah. Hallmark, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I sit there and try and watch it with Tracy. I really do. And I'm like, this acting is just so bad. Like, oh, gosh. I get why you watch it, but she's like faking it. Can't you see that? God never fakes his love for you. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you. Because that's who he is. He's love. And he can't ever stop being who he is. He's love. And he loves you. 
And so Paul is saying, I have you in my heart. I long for you with the affection of Christ. So look, if you, not, if you want to like, have joy in your relationships, don't only be thankful people for people, but long for the goodness of God to be poured out into their lives, even your enemies. Try this. Try God. Don't try me. Try God on this. Test God on this. Go to the Word. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who mistreat you. Pray for those who persecute you. He's saying, look, be like me. And when we trust God in such a way to not only thank God for people, but now we're longing for the goodness of God for them, bar the door. Joy rushes in. Now, some of you are saying, Jeff, there are people in my life who I just cannot do that for. They've just hurt me far too much. I'm not going to do that. Nope, nope, nope. Okay, that's your choice. But let me tell you why you're at that place. You're resentful. What's resentful? It's anger that you are nursing. You are nursing anger because you think by nursing that anger, it's going to protect you. And it's really destroying you. Resentment is the acid that destroys the container in which it's stored, as well as the person on which it's poured. It's an acid. And it's wrecking your heart. Because keeping you from understanding the love of God. How do you come over, overcome a resentment? Continual confession. You confess your resentment to God, and to the people you resent. Talk about hard work. Talk about work that your flesh is going to scream about. Do you get serious about this? Maybe it's just in your marriage, and you realize as you're even sitting here, God's tugging on your heart, and he's going, you resent your husband, and you have for the last 20 years. You've hardened your heart towards him. Husbands, maybe you're here and you resent your wife, and you realize that you've hardened your heart towards your wife. That's God's daughter, by the way. One of the things that God has called me to do when I fall into resentment towards the people around me is to go and confess it and ask for forgiveness. You know why? Even though they may not put the words on it, they already know that I'm resenting them. Do you know what people around you resent you? You know, because they just don't really celebrate your goodness and they kind of stand around with their arms crossed. And you realize that their lips are kind of perched and they don't smile as easily around you as you might think that they would. They've hardened their heart towards you. And when you do that around people, they know, they know it. So one of the things that God calls you to do is go and confess your sins to each other and pray so that you might be healed. And so what I've learned to do is I've actually on staff here, even later, I had to go sit with someone and just say, I'm sorry, I've been resenting you. Will you please forgive me? When you do that, especially with a fellow brother or sister in the Lord, they're like, Really? Like, what's going on? And then you get an opportunity to tell your son the story, but you just say, look, there is no reason that you need to take responsibility for my resentment. That's mine. That's not yours. I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? God's forgiveness is sure. He's already forgiven you on the cross. No question about it. But it's always good for you to go to him and get tuned back up to that forgiveness again. If you continually confess to God and to others and you practice ongoing forgiveness and you couple that with thanksgiving, you will experience joy. And God will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. You see, God wants you to be progressively freer and freer and freer and have greater joy. So Paul says, I have you in my mind, I have you in my heart, and I have you in my prayers. See, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now look, this is important. 
When you pray for someone in your life, you are placing them on the altar of God. You see, you just think about it. This is Abraham placing Isaac on the altar, and, and he's saying, I lift him up to you. He's yours. Have your way with him, God. When you pray for your children, when you pray for your spouse, when you pray for those people around you, your parents, your in-laws, whatever it might be, you are placing them on the altar before God. And God, you are saying, you love them more than I do, God. And you're the only one, God, that can change them. I can't. And God, you want me to play a part, and at the same time, you want me to let go and let you. Can you say this? Let go and let God. Let go and let God. You see, God, this person is your responsibility, not mine. And God, I believe that you can do your best work in them. So I'm stepping aside, Lord, and I'm letting you have them. And I'm taking myself off of your throne. You see, I'm not going to try and play God for these people anymore. I'm not going to try and control them. I'm not thinking that I could change them. I'm not going to meddle in all their affairs. I'm not going to take their inventory rather than my own. Because if you do those things, that will rob you of your joy. But if you bring the people in your life whom you love to God, and you consistently and repeatedly place them on the altar before God, and you thank God for and you cry out to God for them. And you ask, Lord God, Jesus, please pour out all your blessings on them. Soften their hearts, Lord God. Open them up to your love, Lord Jesus. Help them to understand how much you are faithful to them. And you cling to God on their behalf. He will guide you in you playing your part. But you will see him do in them what you never could have done. Enjoy will rush in. A deep and abiding sense of well-being, despite your circumstances, is forever yours. Maybe you're here today, and you're in a relationship that's draining you of joy. Maybe that's because you haven't had these people around you in your mind, or in your heart, or in your prayers. Maybe, just maybe, there's someone that you need to lay up on the altar. I want to ask the prayer team to come forward in way of closing. We have a prayer team here. Do we have a prayer team here? Got a couple, two, three. There we go. Thank you. And I strongly want to encourage you to come forward and let one of these people pray for you. If right now you need the joy of the Lord, maybe there's someone you need to lay up on the altar. Maybe you're here today and you don't even think joy is possible for you because you've been so downcast in your soul. You don't think God can restore you. Can I give you a word from the scripture? This is from our brother Solomon. I have been deprived of peace and I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say to myself, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them well, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I bring to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
where I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. I will wait quietly for him. See, the Lord is good to those who put their hope in him. To those who wait quietly for the Lord, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning and you need joy in your life. You need the salvation of the Lord. I want to ask you to come forward as we sing this last song together and place all of your worries, all of the people in your life on the altar before God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are the one who delivers. We thank you, Lord, that when we wait on you, you turn to us and you hear our cries and you pick us up out of the slimy pit, out of the muck and the mire, and you put our feet on a rock. You give us a firm place to stand. You put a new song in our mouths, a hymn of praise to you, God. Thank you, Lord.